Hello and welcome to Sounds Strategic, the podcast of the International Institute for Strategic Studies. I am Antonio Sampaio and I am delighted to welcome today two of my colleagues at the Conflict Security and Development Program to talk about the impact of the coronavirus pandemic in countries facing armed conflict, as well as the implications for international peacebuilding efforts. So, Virginia Comoli is the head of the Conflict Security and Development Program, and Eleanor Beaver is research associate at the program and also has the dubious honor of being my roommate in Arundel House back when the world was a simpler and pandemic free place. The coronavirus, the coronavirus crisis has made governments and media turn introspective, looking after their own for understandable reasons. But for many countries facing not only armed conflict, but also very weak and under-resourced institutions, the pandemic means potential increase in violence, unrest, food insecurity, and desperately needed international aid. But it may also present some opportunities. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres, for instance, has called for a global ceasefire to facilitate humanitarian responses. Virginia, let me start with you because you've just come out of the editing process for the annual armed conflict survey. There are currently 33 armed conflicts uh, being followed uh, in the in the book that we publish every year. Uh, what are the main trends that you see in some of the armed conflict um, uh, armed conflicts that uh, you monitor uh, that have been brought about by COVID since you um, since the the publication has gone to press? Hi, uh, hello everyone. Uh, yes, the book has recently gone to press and we spent months and months uh, studying, analyzing the 33 uh, situation of our um, conflict currently uh, ongoing uh, in the world. One thing that we uh, spend a lot of time focusing on is understanding the behaviors and dynamics of, uh, the, of the many conflict parties that are involved in conflict, uh, both state, multinational organization, non-state actors. Uh, they paint a very uh, complex uh, situation. They have uh, multiple agendas, competing agendas that are driven by political, economic, religious, ethnic, uh, you name it, uh, motivations. And this is already, as I said, a very complex uh, situation. And uh, we are now monitoring very closely what is happening with the spread of the uh, COVID-19 pandemic, which adds an additional la layer of complication to uh, situations that are already very, uh, very fragile. We were uh, particularly concerned when the World Health Organization recently issued a warning that Africa could be the next epicenter of the pandemic. Of the 33 uh, conflicts that we monitor, 12 are actually taking place on the African continent, uh, 10 in Sub-Saharan Africa and 2 in North Africa. So over a third of the conflicts are on the continent. And although at the moment the, the, the contagion has been fairly limited, as of the 28th of April, the African Union had reported just over 33,000 uh, cases and 1,467 deaths. Uh, although those numbers are fairly low in comparison to other regions in the world, uh, there is a fear that things would as can escalate and can escalate quite uh, quite rapidly. The United Nations Economic Commission for Africa has even warned that 300,000 people uh, could actually uh, die across uh, the continent and has indeed called for uh, uh, 
uh, one billion dollar safety net for the continent in order to ease uh, to ease the situation and as even as for uh, the halting the on external debt uh, payments to support African continent African um, countries in their uh, fight against uh, against the pandemic. Uh, so far, we've seen that uh, most cases have focused or have been recorded in African capitals, but, but slowly they are moving uh, elsewhere in areas that are actually affected by, uh, by conflict. And we've seen that uh, recently in Nigeria and in Cameroon, uh, uh, only uh, in mid-late uh, mid, mid April, we've seen cases of COVID-19 contagion reported in Borno State, which is the epicenter of the conflict with Boko Haram in northeastern uh, Nigeria. Uh, the situation, uh, of course, uh, in Af in many African countries is one already of fragility in addition to uh, situations of conflict. We see a large, uh, a large proportion of the population, around 60% of urban dwellers, uh, or living in overcrowded slums where uh, hygienic conditions are, are very uh, precarious where many people who don't have access to, um, to, to, to clean water and the health infrastructure often is, 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 very, uh, is, is very frail and already made uh, even weaker by, uh, by conflict. Uh, one of the, um, the conflicts that we've already seen increase in activities is the conflict across the, the Sahel and Burkina Faso uh, in particular. And uh, the health infrastructure has been severely impacted by by ongoing violent conflict there, and already 1.5 million people have lost access to health care since uh, 2019 because of the violence. So you can only imagine our concern where these people who already are struggling, as it is, because of uh, uh, infrastructural uh, fragility because of conflict now also facing uh, facing the pandemic which is uh, multiple also uh, secondary um, secondary effects which for instance could include uh, food the spike in food prices that results from the uh, closure of borders which has been uh, which have been introduced by a number of countries in order to limit movement of, of, of people. Um, and also, I think what is also in, uh, important to, uh, to remember is that one of the lessons that we can learn from the response in a number of Western countries, for instance, in the United Kingdom, is the, it really is the importance of a whole of government, but really a whole of society approach uh, to, uh, to, to the pandemic, to the to response to the pandemic. Well, areas of conflict are not really conducive to uh, coordination or collaboration among different uh, different. Uh, partners within government and within society. And this really creates a further, or further hinders the, um, the fight against the, uh, against the pandemic. Mm. And one of the lines of support that many of these governments um, rely on to um, respond to humanitarian societal violent 
dynamics of these armed conflicts is the multinational, the international system, multinational organizations, regional organizations, uh, such as the United Nations, you've cited the African Union. And in this time of coronavirus, one of the interesting discussions that um, I've, I've, I've followed is how the, the nation state is being reinforced, the role of the states in society, etc., and that one of the potential negative implications is reduced international cooperation. How are you seeing the international organizations, multinational efforts, uh, Virginia, on this uh, coronavirus crisis? For instance, how is the United Nations coping with, um, with the crisis? Yes, well, um, across a number of uh, conflicts or conflict areas, of course, as you know, the United Nations play a very important, uh, very important role, and they currently have 13 missions uh, across uh, across uh, conflicts uh, in the world, many of which are actually based in uh, in Africa. Uh, normally, peacekeepers would be uh, supporting uh, local efforts in uh, preventing the spread of a disease and also helping with the support and coordination in terms of the logistic and communication and outreach when a, uh, a disease, a pandemic is ongoing. So the, the, the peacekeepers would actually play that role normally. However, what we are seeing, given the, the, the seriousness of, of the situation, is that in early April, the United Nations announced that it was suspending rotations of all uniformed uh, personnel uh, uh, until until the end of June, uh, which uh, which means that um, uh, troops who are currently based uh, in 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 African uh, deployments will not be able to to rotate, and new deployments will not uh, take place for the uh, for the foreseeable uh, fu um, future. Of course, these are necessary uh, necessary measures. There, of course, there there are efforts uh, across the whole world to limit uh, international uh, international travel, and we know how that is important. And this is particularly a sensitive issues for the United Nations because. Um, in 2016, the then Secretary General Ban Ki-moon um, apologized for the role that UN troops had in the 2010 uh, cholera um, uh, crisis in Haiti. Uh, and that was basically the result of, uh, oh, well, at least it was um, partly the uh, the result of a deployment of a Nepalese contingents and also poor uh, sanitations in their uh, in their barracks in in Haiti so the the UN is very sensitive uh, when it comes to uh, these uh, these issues um, but we've also uh, seen how uh, some uh, some countries, uh, such as uh, South Korea, have withdrawn uh, peacekeepers. For instance, from UNMIS, which is the UN United Nations mission mission to South, South Sudan. This uh, predated this decision predated the UN announcement to suspend all uh, rotations. Uh, but the repatriation of some troops also means that. Um, uh, that, that those who are left in the field are actually uh, facing uh, increased challenges because of a shortage, um, shortage of, of staff. Uh, also, for those uh, peacekeepers who are uh, on the ground, there are a number of limitations to their ability uh, to um, to implement their, their mandate. For instance, in the Central African Republic, MINUSCA, uh, which is a 14,000 uh, strong um, mission, 
that is, um, is, is aimed at protecting civilians across the country is facing great limitations because they are unable uh, to move uh, across, uh, uh, across the country owing to a suspension of internal, uh, uh, internal travel. So th their ability to deliver what they are there to deliver has been uh, greatly reduced and this has, is likely to have impact on, uh, on, security, uh, on security as a whole. And finally also let's not uh, forget the uh, the suspension of, of rotations means very long um, deployments for those who are already on the ground and that has an impact on their um, uh, physical and mental health and which of course in, in turn can have an impact on their, uh, on their performance and, and the effectiveness of the, mission, uh, of the mission as a whole. So there are a number of uh, challenges uh, there uh, of course. Uh, and uh, and also uh, one uh, important point to 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 raise is the um, is is money. Uh, the United Nations is now looking to to raise uh, about two billion dollars around the world, uh, so that it can deal with the uh, with with the pandemic and 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 its uh, consequences uh, without having any a negative impact on humanitarian uh, operations that uh, that are not actually related to the pandemic crisis, but that unfortunately, and in spite of the call for a global ceasefire by Secretary General Gutierrez, have not actually been put on hold and they're actually continuing in many countries. Mm. And all that uh, call for a global ceasefire um, uh, Nella, do you think that, given your understanding of how non-state armed groups work and think, um, do you think this call has any chance of having a minimal, mi meaningful impact uh, on reducing violence? And further, uh, more broadly, how are armed groups um, in your area of study, which uh, is sub-Saharan Africa, for instance, how are non-state armed groups responding to the coronavirus? I myself have seen some evidence from uh, Rio that gangs have been um, imposing um, lockdown uh, in the areas they control, which is remarkably uh, science um, um, remarkably uh, aware of the scientific advice. Uh, so how are armed groups in more fragile settings in sub-Saharan Africa coping with that? Thanks, Antonio. Um, yeah, it's been extremely interesting seeing the divergent approaches of different armed groups around the world. And uh, I think it was very difficult to know what to expect at the start of the pandemic. Um, and certainly the reality has been different uh, to a few of my expectations. So, for example, when Secretary General Guterres called for that global ceasefire, I don't know about you, but my expectations for responses to it were pretty low. And it's true that uh, responses to it have been quite modest, um, but certainly from the non-state group side, there have been some interesting reactions. So for instance, there were, there were a few conflicts where this call for a ceasefire kind of bolstered existing um, ceasefires or plans for ceasefire anyways. Uh, so for example, Yemen and Afghanistan kind of fell into this bracket, but were um, ultimately, these were slightly disappointing cases since the conflict parties spoke enthusiastically about a COVID-19 ceasefire, but didn't really live up to the commitments. The ceasefire was 
initially politically convenient signalling, uh, but violations of that ceasefire could also be very easily blamed on enemy aggression, and in the end it didn't happen. That said, there were some other more encouraging examples. So, for instance, one of the factions of the Sudan People's Liberation Movement North, uh, the El Hilu faction, uh, committed to extending its pre-existing ceasefire on the back of uh, Secretary, Gen uh, Secretary General's um, call for for a ceasefire. Uh, we've also seen commitments by insurgents in the Philippines and in Thailand. Um, and one of Cameroon's rebel groups, the South Cameroon Defence Forces, has also committed to respecting it. Now, it's easy to see that uh, some groups do stand to gain publicly from do stand to gain from committing to that ceasefire publicly. Uh, the Cameroon example is quite a good one. Uh, the South Cameroon Defence Forces are one of the smaller groups, but it has received a great deal more attention as a result of this declaration. That said, I don't think we should rule out more altruistic or public health-minded thinking in non-state armed groups either. Uh, so in a nutshell, I think that the global ceasefire goes to show that it never hurts to ask. You might not get much, and there will inevitably be mixed motives driving decisions to sign on for us to a ceasefire for however long, but that doesn't invalidate the efforts to engage these groups or any results that they may achieve. Now, uh, some of the more major armed groups, and particularly those with aspirations for statehood, have taken on bigger roles in fighting the virus. Uh, so the Taliban in Afghanistan, for instance, has been very active creating public awareness campaigns, uh, both through visits to rural areas and through distributing material on its WhatsApp channels. Uh, it's posted videos of members handing out masks and soap to civilians, and it's promised to cooperate with humanitarian aid groups responding to the virus. However, some other state-aspiring groups have taken much more concerning positions as far as tackling the virus is concerned. So to go back to Africa, uh, Al-Shabaab released a recorded statement uh, in the evening of April 27th, so last night. It was a sound file of its uh, spokesman, Sheikh Ali Mohammed Raga, uh, with a message saying that COVID-19 was a punishment for disbelievers, but particularly the US, China and the EU for their war against Islam. He told Muslims to pray for protection. And uh, yeah, this was... This seems to be their fixed position. They had said something similar at the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, I was certainly hoping to see an evolution of their position as the severity of the threat became clearer. But this most recent messages suggest sadly not. And this has some very scary implications for Somalia and for the region more broadly. So as of today, Somalia has 480 cases with 23 dead. Uh, most of those cases are in the Benadir region, which contains the capital Mogadishu. Um, and while this is where the majority of healthcare facilities are, that's not necessarily comforting given the numerous urban displacement camps within the city where social distancing will be more or less impossible and where delivering any kind of healthcare would be extremely diff difficult given the presence of Al-Shabaab in those camps. Um, and I guess the, there's a broader point to be made from Al-Shabaab's reaction, which is that religion is going to play an interesting role in many conflicts during the pandemic. 
Um, these rules will be both good and bad. So most countries' major religious institutions have been involved in, for instance, raising public awareness and helping people affected by the virus. Um, but it's also produced some more, uh, some more problematic reactions. All religions struggle with the question of where God's will ends and human, human agency begins. But religious fundamentalists who see themselves as God's chosen side and all others as the enemy uh, would might help uh, might interpret the pandemic in different ways. Uh, for instance, the Boko Haram leader Abu Bakr Shikau has said, "We have the anti-coronavirus. It is the Allah we worship. So I don't think we can expect him to take the risk seriously anytime soon." Um, we have seen some more mixed reactions from Al-Qaeda and from ISIS. Uh, so, for instance, Al-Qaeda said that those among them who are killed by the virus will be martyrs, but it's also still encouraging hand-washing in its messaging. Uh, ISIS has also had a bit of a mixed, mixed reaction. Uh, it initially celebrated in its messaging that this disease was going to be had been sent to punish their enemies. But this has given way to more cautious messages, including newsletters which give guides to how to protect yourself from the virus and telling their followers not to travel to Europe, although those followers who are already in Europe should uh, should do their best to attack. Um, now, one of the slightly scarier messages in there um, was an, uh, an opinion piece in their weekly newsletter that implied that the best defense uh, against the best defense against the virus was jihad. Um, it's going to be hard to say how widespread this view is, uh, but I think one thing that's going to be important to watch as far as jihadist groups goes is where is how they will react uh, during Ramadan. Uh, so many jihadist groups view Ramadan as the most important month in which to deliver attacks. Uh, this view is very controversial in Islamic theology, but the jihadists have uh, several reasons for it. Um, that's why in a lot of conflicts we see spikes in the number of attacks during Ramadan, and especially in uh, complex wave spectacular attacks. Uh, and so far there isn't anything to suggest that uh, violence is that their violence is decreasing in response to COVID-19, but an analysis of the number of attacks at the end of Ramadan will be quite an interesting reference point for that. So Nella, interesting that you mention uh, jihadist uh, organizations and particularly al-Shabaab, because my next question was going to be precisely on that. Uh, so where some, um, many actually, um, um, non-state armed groups have shown some um, proactive measures against coronavirus and implementing uh, social distancing. Um, there are also some uh, pretty um, negative and dark precedents for armed groups in situations of crisis. So I'm thinking precisely here of the famine in Somalia in 2011 when al-Shabaab uh, denied that there was any problem uh, in the areas it controlled in southern Somalia and banned Western aid organizations, which led to huge loss of life. I think there are some estimates of close to 5% of the population in uh, Lower Chabelle region dying of uh, famine. So um, do you think that this has any Anything to do with the character um, of these organizations, how they are, their, their organization, um, or the um, motivations that they fight for, or the worldview? Um, and more generally, do you think this is more about the 
skepticism towards humanitarian responses rather than uh, just not uh, being able to or not being willing to do anything at all? Um, I think it's a, it's probably a combination of several of those factors. There, is, there has always been a concerted effort at the heart of Al-Shabaab to distance uh, the Somali population that it controls in central and southern Somalia from the central government and from international responses. Uh, so for, to give you an example, one of their uh, most common refrains to the population, to the people uh, under their control is that the Somali government is a, uh, which is, has has a very large number of um, people from the diaspora in its in senior positions. And this has created quite a lot of tension uh, with ordinary Somalis who see them as a kind of uh, a more privileged class and who are unjustifiably getting more positions as a result. Al-Shabaab has always played on that and it's tried to um, insinuate that uh, these uh, that the diaspora government is effectively a colonization effort by Western countries. And I think similarly, it's it's got a history of trying to paint aid groups in the same light. Um, and yeah, I think the, the, the comparison with the famine is uh, um, certainly an apt one for now. I hope that perhaps as um, cases grow in Somalia, Al-Shabaab will have to be a little bit more receptive to popular opinion if um if if that moves if that moves in favor in favor of stronger measures right now attempts at a crackdown at attempts at a lockdown in somalia have been um met with a very mixed response but uh, perhaps public support for one will grow as the severity of the virus makes itself clear so, Virginia, um, when we look at the governments um, in conflict-affected countries, um, obviously they face weaker or they, they have weaker uh, political institutions. They have um, long-standing issues with providing public services. Um, has, has this diminished or weaker position of um, political systems and governments in conflict-affected regions impacted their capacity to implement quarantine, to implement measures to be respected or trusted by their populations. So how are national governments faring in conflict-affected um, regions in this pandemic? Well, different uh, governments have introduced uh, different uh, restrictive uh, measures from um, core fuse. They've been introducing bans of, of uh, travel across um, uh, state borders. Um, of course, uh, uh, bans on international travel, uh, the need to, to wear face masks, um, etc. Um, but it's also interesting what uh, Eleanor was, was discussing in terms of people's perception and, um, and how in some countries and among certain communities, uh, the broader population, or at least uh, sections of the population, don't actually believe that uh, COVID-19 is a real threat, it's not something that will eventually affect them. Of course, this has then an impact on the government's ability to, uh, to effectively implement those, those measures, uh, such as um, social, social distancing which for one they're already very difficult to implement to, to begin with given the very crowded conditions many uh, people across some of this uh, region uh, live in 
And also uh, because we have to also uh, bear in mind that there are different ways of life. For instance, how do you enforce lockdowns among nomadic tribes? So you, it's very hard to develop a strategy uh, for social isolation, for instance, that is a one-size-fits-all, because you will need to uh, to to um, to account for for these different uh, differences uh, among different um, different communities, and uh, and indeed there is also an element of mistrust uh, among the population when it comes to the government. And, and also of government, uh, government measures. I was reading very recently some interviews conducted uh, among uh, some Central African Republic um, uh, citizens, and many were, uh, were thinking that, well, COVID-19 is not a real thing, and is basically just the way that the government is, uh, or is, is a ploy used by the government to extort money out of the World Health Organization, and they won't be uh, a victim of this, uh, of this pandemic. So there is all issue around um, education and, and messaging, uh, which already uh, is uh, made difficult by the existence uh, of uh, violent groups such as Al-Shabaab that uh, Nella uh, mentioned, that are already sending out this messaging that uh, the, uh, the pandemic is a punishment uh, and it would basically only affect certain sections of the population. So already there is that, uh, that the governments need to... Uh, to counter, in addition to uh, to, to to other to other challenges, uh, one thing that is uh, very concerning, uh, and we've seen a number of cases across Africa, is the uh, misuse of uh, of force by on the part of certain governments. So uh, governments of Kenya, Uganda, Rwanda, South Africa and others uh, have been heavily criticized by uh, the United Nations Human Rights Commissioner uh, for abusing uh, their powers, uh, imposing uh, uh, very restrictive measures that are enforced uh, through uh, large-scale uh, detentions, through shootings, and true tr truly unlawful uh, unlawful behavior uh, apparently over uh, 17000 people in south africa have been arrested as a result of uh, covid-19 related restrict related restrictions that were not apparently uh, followed by those uh, by those citizens uh, similar in kenya a number of human rights uh, organizations have been um, calling for uh, these uh, these measures to be lifted or at least to be implemented in a way that is more uh, in line with uh, with, with human rights, uh, so the, the the responses have been uh, have been uh, mixed, and really have highlighted uh, the uh, the challenges that, that many uh, governments have. Uh, some they are in a way um, self made. Because when people, when governments implement very heavy-handed uh, measures, that usually uh, backfires. And others have to do with issues of education, uh, messaging, and also, of course, when these uh, situations unfold against a background or backdrop of, of conflict, it means that there are parts of a, of of, of a territory that are actually outside the control of the national state. And that's where non-state armed groups have been uh, playing a greater role than, than the state itself. 
So as we look forward um, and knowing that there are so many um, complications and challenges facing conflict-affected uh, countries, but one area in particular that I've been thinking about is uh, the issue of food security. Uh, with people queuing up for food, even in the streets here in the developed world, uh, where we are in the United Kingdom. How do you think, um, both of you, uh, food systems um, would cope, particularly in Africa, where many countries depend on, on food imports? Um, I can start by having a go at that. The um, It is an extremely difficult question. I think it's going to depend on a number of things, looking at East Africa and Somalia in particular, where uh, food security was already an extremely acute problem, and particularly with the recent uh, influx of locust swarms that have destroyed um, massive amounts of uh, massive amounts of the food stocks that were supposed to be available. Um, the yeah, the, the food security um, arena is facing multiple threats at this point. I think one one of the things that's going to affect this a great deal is how humanitarian groups are able to operate in the context of coronavirus and there are sort of several things that have uh, that have concerned me. The first of them is as Virginia pointed out there is an unfortunate history of um, international presences and aid organisations bringing diseases into the countries that they're trying to help, with uh, Haiti in 2010 being the the optimum, the, the best known case. But for example, in uh, early April, South Sudan saw a huge backlash against uh, foreign aid deliverers in general, but the UN in particular, after four UN um, staff were diagnosed with coronavirus and they were the first people in the country to be diagnosed. Now, you know, we can't be certain that they were the ones who brought coronavirus into the country, but it's certainly possible. And this triggered a lot of uh, social media posts threatening uh, threatening UN staff with attack and with death. Uh, and the government responded by uh, sending soldiers to surround UN bases and not letting them leave but also telling people in nearby refugee camps that they might be affected. They might be now infected as a result. So there's going to be a serious challenge of trust uh, between uh, international efforts, uh, including around food security and around local populations, not unreasonably. And all these organisations are going to have to walk an extremely difficult line between deciding whether they take risks and or uh, try and deliver their goods in various different ways. And the other thing that I think is not entirely clear at the moment, but important to bear in mind is possible restrictions on where uh, aid can be delivered. So, for instance, a lot of humanitarian groups have been discouraged from distributing uh, aid in territories controlled by non-state groups, but particularly those that have been designated as terrorist organisations, because depending on which body of law you're looking at, it is illegal and um, a potentially criminal offence to supply um, material, to, to supply any material goods to uh, terrorist organisations. Now, humanitarians should, in theory, have the independence to uh, distribute food, distribute aid where it's needed. That said, uh, it has been a factor that has limited uh, humanitarian delivery in various conflict zones. And this, I think the, pa the pandemic is 
the best possible example of why that's a very dangerous reality um that the uh without without responses wherever there are cases present uh this pandemic isn't going to be stopped Thanks. Uh, just quickly before we go, Virginia, do you see a higher, uh, a heightened risk of riots, political unrest, uh, following the lockdown? Or of course, during the lockdown, presumably, uh, it's harder to do uh, riots. But do you see the potential for backlash against um, governments when the economic bill for you know the the, the pandemic comes? Oh, absolutely. I think we've already seen uh, instances of uh, people protesting and rioting uh, on the streets. We had seen those in, uh, in in Nigeria, people who are uh, afraid that these um, social distancing and travel bans measures will have an impact on their livelihood. Uh, so we've seen a number of those. I think we are likely to uh, to see more. And uh, as I'm uh, thinking also at the experience with the Ebola crisis in West Africa a few years back, where we even in, 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 uh, in that context, we saw a number of, of social uh, protests. We also saw similar things to what Nella was describing. So there's um, uh, perhaps attacks against you know health workers or humanitarian um, actors, this uh, perception that they might actually be there to do something that is detrimental to the population. And those things all uh, led to, well, in many cases, led to um, social unrest. So I think we are uh, likely to see, uh, to, to, to see more of that. Well, one final thing that I'd like to also uh, add is that although um, many reports uh, paint a possibly very bleak uh, future situation for Africa vis-a-vis uh, -vis the uh, COVID-19 pandemic, uh, we don't have sufficient uh, sufficient data because the numbers remain uh, remain quite low. It doesn't mean that they can't increase, but on both sides of the argument, i.e. whether it's going to be the next, Africa is going to be the next uh, uh, hotspot or whether actually uh, the numbers are likely to remain low. I think on both sides of the argument, the, the, the evidence that we currently have is still, is still limited uh, to make uh, a, a final assessment. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. We are dealing with the information and data that is available now and trying to make some uh, forecasts, but it is a very fluid situation. Thank you very much, um, Virginia Comoli and Eleanor Beaver from the Conflict Security Development Program, my colleagues at the uh, IISS. Uh, and please subscribe to Sound Strategic for more in-depth discussions. We're doing um, a series of programs on the impacts of the coronavirus around the world. And to keep up to date with the latest trends in international security and armed conflicts, please follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. See you next time.